While others collect seashells, I collect interpretations and I seem to have a growing collection of interpretations on Romans. And today's book offers a different definition of righteousness and a different understanding of election and much more. Hi, my name is Terence and I'm your host for Reading and Readers, a podcast where I review Christian books for you. Today, I review a commentary on Romans from the Interpretation Bible Commentary series written by Paul J. Actemeyer. 256 pages published by Westminster John Knox Press in 1986. It was a free Logos book for October and I know it's already November, so it's no longer free, but you can continue listening to know what the book is about and hopefully learn a few things on the way. Paul J. Actemeyer, also known as Bud to his friends, passed away in January 28, 2013. Elmhurst College, where he studied and later taught, published an obituary. I'll read an excerpt. I quote, Actemeyer earned his Bachelor of Divinity and Doctor of Theology degrees at New York's Union Theological Seminary. He spent more than four decades teaching at colleges and seminaries in the United States and Europe, including Elmhurst, Lancaster Theological Seminary, and the Graduate School of Ecumenical Studies of the World Council of Churches in Switzerland. For 24 years, he was a professor at Union Presbyterian Seminary in Richmond, where he retired in 1997 as Herbert Wirth and Annie H. Jackson, Professor Emeritus of Biblical Interpretation. End quote. Clearly, a distinguished and learned scholar. He was a prolific writer, having written 18 books and numerous scholarly journals. And for the purpose of today's review, I should note that he is both the author of this commentary on Romans and he is also the New Testament editor for the entire series. Interpretation, a Bible commentary for teaching and preaching. I can't comment on the entire series because this is the first book that I've read from that series, but uh, I can say that uh, today's book does clearly um, is clearly aimed at the teacher. At the end of every chapter, Actemeyer signals the teacher or preacher and he offers guidance for the Sunday school class or the pulpit, telling us that this is what the passage says, this is not what the passage says. Here are some other useful Bible verses that you can refer to and you can connect them in this way to bring out this particular topic. Um, here are some questions you can ask and this is how you can encourage, warn, guide and lead them to Christ. And for pastors who plan around the lectionary, you will like how he relates the passage to Lent. Okay, so you have Lenten, uh, Reflection, Introspection, you have Advent, uh, Pentecost, and so on. So if you do plan your sermons or the church life around the lectionary, then this is a pretty good uh, commentary to refer to. The book is divided into four parts. Each part is broken down into many chapters that covers all of the 16 chapters of Romans. The four parts are, number one, or part one, God's Lordship and the Problem of the Past, Grace and Wrath. Part two, God's Lordship and the Problem of the Present, Grace and Law. Part three, God's Lordship and the Problem of the Future, Israel 
and God's Gracious Plan. Part 4. God's Lordship and the Problem of the Daily Living. Grace and the Structures of Life. So that's the outline of the book. And uh, let me just describe the outline of today's review. The bulk of today's review will be on two major criticisms I have against the book. Actually, the list was actually quite long, but I have narrowed down to these two issues uh, because they run through the entire book. And, um, and I think these are quite critical matters. Then after telling you why I think these are critical matters, I will spend just a little bit of time to talk about its uh, redeeming features. And I conclude with how you can benefit from this book. So let's move to the first of my criticisms. When it comes to the book of Romans, or the letter, the epistle to the Romans, the key is to understand uh, what does righteousness mean. 500 years ago, Roman Catholic Europe was turned upside down because faithful Bible students discovered that when it says the righteous shall live by faith, it does not mean that do-gooders are saved. Rather, the righteousness of God that is described in Romans chapter 1 refers to the righteousness that Christ imputed to us. This is the great exchange. We gave Jesus our sins and he gave us his righteousness. And so we live by faith. Knowing the history of the Reformation, we should then be alert when anyone offers a different definition, a slight tweak to the definition of righteousness. Not because it is wrong. We don't know whether it's wrong until we study it. Um, but we should be alert because we are approaching a non-trivial definition that affects not only our interpretation of Romans, but it also affects the framework of our faith. The Reformation gave us a definition of righteousness, which is sometimes described as forensic or legal, meaning that when God sees us, he sees Jesus, thus God declares. So God declares us to be just. Actemeyer writes, I quote, The difficulty with such an understanding of righteousness is that God appears to regard us as something we are not, that is, Sinless. Some have wanted to say God regards us as if we had no sin. But then God's judgment is based on an untruth, hardly what one would expect from a just and impartial God. The second problem lies in the fact that Paul can say God is righteous, and one must then wonder who is in a position to pass judgment on God and say that he has conformed to some legal norm. If this is juridical terminology, who has brought God into court to try him, to see whether he can justify himself and can then pronounce him righteous? End quote. So there are two problems, and uh, here are my two quick answers to those problems. First, no matter how you define righteousness, a Christian understanding of God will always show a just God forgiving sinners who don't deserve grace and mercy. We sin, but it is Jesus who paid the price. And God rewards Jesus for his obedience to the cross until death. 
And the question becomes, why should I gain from his reward? In Psalms 51 verse 7, David pleads, Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Is David not alluding to a purity, a sinlessness that only God can provide and that we now know is only attainable through Jesus Christ? So, um, there is always going to be that problem of uh, God's judgment uh, on, on who we are as sinners, and yet somehow it doesn't show God to be just. Okay? So there's always that tension over there. The next problem he brings is that if righteousness is juridical terminology, so it's a forensic or legal term, who has brought God into court to try him? So that's a very provocative question. The idea of bringing God to court horrifies us, but we should not let that image play on our piety and thus frame the argument in error. Uh, listen to Hebrews 6 verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Now, if God can swear by himself, is it really so wrong for God to declare himself righteous? Is it so wrong for God to justify himself as the one that is on, the only one that is truly righteous? Now, since Actemeyer rejects righteousness in the forensic, in the legal sense, uh, let's hear what is his own definition. Okay? So he refers, he, he tells us that uh, righteousness is regularly used in the Old Testament to refer to the covenant. Okay, that is true. And so he defines, I quote, to be just or righteous is to uphold the covenant. To be unrighteous is to act in such a way that the covenant is broken. In that context, righteousness is used to describe a relationship. What upholds the relationship is righteous. What destroys the relationship is unrighteous. And he End quote. So he backs this up with scholarly support, and I think there is some merit to seeing righteousness as a relationship. That's a perspective that perhaps may be neglected in, in some, uh, some preaching or some studies on this righteousness. But in supporting this definition, in putting forward this definition, does Actemeyer go too far by rejecting, utterly rejecting the forensic definition? Uh, he writes, I quote, all of this, okay, in his uh, book, all of this means righteousness is not a quality or a conformity to some legal norm. Rather, it is a positive relationship to God, growing out of his power to restore through Jesus Christ his gracious lordship over us, a lordship which our idolatrous rebellion had turned into a wrathful lordship. So if you heard just now how the, the part 1, part 2, part 3, part 4 is uh, outlined, you will hear God's Lordship. So this, this idea of righteousness uh, is a very, very key thing for the whole book, okay, in this commentary and how he interprets the book of Romans. And this is my first encounter with uh, righteousness as a relationship, okay, and uh, I foresee for the coming years, when this review is long forgotten, I will test this definition against scripture. But I, but I wonder, and I, I just put it here, clearly our covenantal relationship with God is linked to righteousness. 
it's, it's, it's clear. I mean, um, but is it the definition? That's the point that I struggle with now. When I say I am righteous at home, righteous in marriage, righteous with my wife, there is no tone or shade of a covenantal relationship. I mean, when I say I'm righteous, it sounds like a boast. I'm saying that I have not done anything wrong. Nobody hears me say that and thinks, oh, he is righteous in the marriage means his relationship with his wife is good. I don't think so. Having said that, I accept that it is possible that the Bible defines righteousness in a technical way, as it has done in different, with different words. So it, it is possible that uh, righteousness is, that refers to relationship, but I do look forward to see how Actamai defends it in the rest of the book. And so reading through the book, um, we reach an especially juicy passage. Romans chapter 5, verse 16 to 17. So let me read Romans. Okay, this is from the Bible. I quote, And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. So it is talking about Adam and Christ, the contrast between the two. Uh, let me continue from the scripture. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. End quote. Um, so that is Romans 5, verse 16 to 17. And you hear that the free gift is mentioned three times. What is this free gift? And I understood uh, the free gift to be um, Christ's righteousness, which is mine by faith, I am now gloriously clothed in the royal robes of Christ. That's how I understand the free gift. But what is this free gift to Actamaya? Is the free gift an unbroken relationship? How does that work? Um, because there must be a basis for the restored relationship, right? Of course, you could say that the basis is faith in Christ. Okay, fine, that is the basis. But again, what has changed? How has faith in Christ changed the relationship? For God is still holy. I am still sinful. So, um, so I'm struggling here and I read the next verse in Romans. Perhaps that will shed some light. Romans 5.18 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So I understand that this is in the middle of uh, Romans uh, chapter 5 and some of us may not be familiar with the discussion. Um, but it's again asking the question, what, what does righteousness mean? And in 5.18, it says that one act of righteousness, so it's referring to what Christ has done, and one act of righteousness leads to justification. So I can understand act of righteousness to mean, in simple English, a good act, a sinless act. So I can understand that, because I understand righteousness to mean sinlessness. Okay? 
But I don't know how to read act of righteousness as an act of an unbroken relationship. How do you read? I cannot replace, you see. I cannot do... uh, It it doesn't seem to be corresponding to to how Actamai defines it. And at this point, I'm thinking that, well, maybe that's not how Actamaya interprets it. And I'm just making a fool of myself because maybe he allows for different definitions based on context. So let's hear from Actamaya. How does he understand free gift? How does he understand the act of righteousness? And he doesn't go into it. Um, I, I need to say that this is not a verse-by-verse commentary. So the exposition, the explanation is written as essays, uh, covering large swaths of verses. Actemeyer has a chapter on Romans 5.12-21, to 21, which is what I referred to for, for this, uh, uh, trying to find out what he, he, he understands with the free gift. Um, he titles the chapter, Adam and Christ, Disobedience and Obedience. The focus of the essay is on the contrast between Adam and Christ. That is correct. I think that is clearly the the point that Paul is making, the contrast between Adam and Christ. And Actemeyer has already explained in previous chapters that uh, what this uh, righteousness as a relationship means, and he has also referred uh, eager readers to various scholarly works. Okay, So he gave us commentaries and, and so on. And so maybe when he was expounding on Romans 5, he thinks that he doesn't need to explain further what righteousness uh, means. And I think that he is badly mistaken. And I think that he should know better. Surely he knows that this is a passage, this is a Romans 5, it's a, it's a very rich uh, place to counter his definition. And thus it is worthy of a defense at this point. What is the free gift? What is the act of righteousness? And I wish Actemai had explained. So at the risk of sounding harsh, Without dismissing his credentials, he's definitely, um, I mean, he has passed away and I respect the man's work. But, I mean, just reading this commentary, he seems to have, he seems to take the easy verses which support his definition, and he talks a lot about that, but he avoids the hard verses that would complicate his interpretation. He kind of like sidelines them and doesn't give us anything to deal with. Anything to work with when it comes to those uh, difficult verses. So let's move on from righteousness. Okay, So we don't spend too much time there. Hopefully you understand uh, my contention with it. And let's go to my second one, second criticism, which is located in uh, part 3 of his book, which is the part that covers Romans 9 to 11. Now, if you're familiar with Romans, (laughs) this is a battleground for many faithful Christians Uh, which is why we should expect commentators to give their best effort in their exposition. Now, um, there are many things that can be said, uh, and I don't have the space to to talk about them even in brief, Um, but one of the things I want to to, uh, pick up on is uh, the question of who is Romans 9, Romans 9, chapter, chapter 9 to 11 dealing with, okay? Is it people's? specifically Israel, or is it dealing with individuals? Okay, The question uh, can be rephrased as, is it describing corporate election or individual election? And 
Why does this matter? Well, if the verses refer to individual election, then they strongly support a view that God determines who will be saved. Whereas if it's really talking about corporate election and not individual election, then the we cannot claim that this is the passage that strongly supports God determines who will be saved. And the question of whether God determines or not is a big question. It's one of those uh, theological positions that people have to take and which separate churches, actually. So this is actually a very big question to deal with. So big that I don't think I can take it on in this book review podcast. And I promise you, uh, that I will give you good resources to tackle this topic before the episode ends. Um, because I will not be tackling this topic directly, even as part of this book review. Instead, I will just dem- demonstrate the frustrating way that um, Actemeyer deals with this topic. Now listen to this. Uh, in his commentary on Romans 9, verse 14 to, 9, to 29, uh, Actemeyer writes, I quote, Paul knows, to be sure, of the danger which exists if one resists God's gracious offer of mercy to us rebellious creatures. If we reject that offer of mercy, we run the risk that God will honor our choice. But nowhere does Paul hint that such refusal is willed, let alone predetermined by God. Were it so, the apostolic office would be a sham, and the proclamation of God's gracious act in Jesus of Nazareth and its call to trust in the one whom Jesus called Father would be a snare and a delusion. Later, Actemeyer writes, I quote, The passage is therefore about the enlargement of God's mercy to include Gentiles, not about the narrow and predetermined fate of each individual. End quote. So in the whole passage, which uh, you have not read, and um, but you have to trust me on this, Actemeyer writes as if it is obvious that the first half, um, the, the one talking about the enlargement of God's mercy to include Gentiles, he writes as if that negates the second half, which is predeterminism of each individual. But it is possible that both are true. I don't know anybody who would deny that Romans teaches God's mercy is now extended to the Gentiles. Everybody agrees, all right? So now it's not just for the Jews, but it's also for the Gentiles. So there's no point bringing the heavy guns on this question because everybody, most people at least, would agree to it. The question is whether the verses here can be interpreted as what Actemeyer um, labels as predeterminism. Okay, that God has already determined who will be saved and who will be not. So I'm looking here. Okay, I'm searching for an argument that nullifies uh, predeterminism, and I can't find it. I see repetitions of assertions. He tells us how terrible it is if it were true, that it would be a sham, a delusion. But there is no logical death blow to predeterminism, only indignation. And worse, he shoots himself in the foot. 
A few chapters later, uh, Actemeyer comments on Romans 11 verse 1 to 12. Now let me read, let me read Romans 11 verse 7 to 8 first. Okay, so I'm just going to read so that you understand the context of Actemeyer's comment later. Okay, so this is, I'm going to read Romans 11 verse 7 to 8. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Okay, the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. End quote. Now, hardened, God gave them eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear. Now, isn't this a form of predeterminism? God has determined that some will be saved and some will not. Well, knowing his views on that, what can we expect Actemeyer to say? So we eagerly look to what he writes, and I quote. On this verse, he comments, God is in control. He hardens whom he will. Israel has been hardened. What other conclusion is there than that God has hardened them? No other. And Paul is ready to concede that point. Indeed, how could he not concede it, since Scripture itself, to which Paul so readily attributes authority in these matters, says that very thing. God has hardened a part of Israel. He has dimmed their eyes and stopped up their ears, and the inevitable result is that they have missed the import of God's act in Christ. End quote. Great, he is amplifying what the passage says, which is what every commentator should do. But nowhere does he explain how God, who he concedes, has personally, actively hardened individuals within Israel. How is this the same God who he claims does not predetermine any individual's fate? And he never explains. Instead, in that essay, on this uh, verse, he, on this passage, he goes on about the impact of the hardening. It's so that Israel might be jealous. He goes on to talk about the purpose of the hardening, so that they might be saved. And indeed, that's what Paul wrote. But come on, surely anyone can see that there is a knot to be untangled here. And I'm not saying that God's hardening of Israel is a slam dunk. I have heard good explanations for this, for those who are holding Actemeyer's views. What I'm saying is, in this commentary, Actemeyer seems a bit oblivious to the need to defend his interpretation at crucial verses in Romans. And so, this commentary does not do enough to prepare the preacher for what happens after he comes down from the pulpit, after the class is over, what is he going to say when someone asks, Pastor, if God does not predetermine any individual's fate, then why does the Bible say God hardened parts of Israel? There are answers to that question, but they are not found in this book. I know I've spent a lot of time on the two criticisms, but I think it reveals the main doctrinal contention and also kinds of reveals his approach to some, to some of the tough questions. But the book is not all bad. Okay? I just picked the critical uh, points. 
When Atamaya expounds on verses that deal with who we are and who we should be, he is very good. In Romans 2, there is a danger that Paul's harsh criticism of the Jews would lead us to think very highly of ourselves. Okay, so, but Atamaya rightly warns us of this. He directs the teacher, the preacher, to make sure that the, the Christian under the care would not boast of themselves. In Romans 13, on Christians and the government, uh, Actemeyer poses the problem of evil government, rebellious citizens. He explains the role of government according to scripture. He unpacks it and honestly, humbly states that the Bible is not so clear at what point the Christian is to refuse to obey the government. And so there are many cases of this where he offers very good instructor's guide um, and so it's not all bad yet, uh, coming to the conclusion, <laughs> you can sense that I won't be making a strong recommendation for this commentary. I had a hard time reading this book, and not just because I had to figure out in my head um, what do I believe, what does he believe on these uh, theological positions. I had a hard time because he asserts something and I have to read and reread a whole essay. It's difficult to, it's not verse by verse, so I can just like just go directly to that point. I have to read the whole essay just to check and double check whether he addressed my concerns. And then feeling very disappointed when he did not. He failed to defend in a point where I think he should. So this should not be your main commentary for Romans. If you only have money for one or two or three commentaries, I would recommend Douglas Moo or Thomas Schreiner or later on I'll explain a bit more, a book by Andrew David Nasselli. But if you're flush with cash and there is a space in your bookshelf, physical or digital, then Paul J. Actemeyer's commentary on Romans uh, gives an alternative uh, perspective on key doctrines. The problem I find is even if you zealously hold to his positions, he does not make a good case for them. Now that's the end of my review on Actor Meyer's commentary on Romans, but I did promise resources for the corporate versus individual election question. So here goes. In another commentary on Romans, uh, Romans, a concise guide to the greatest letter ever written by Andrew David Nasselli, which I reviewed in episode 54, 55, Nasali, in his commentary, had even less space to discuss the debate, um, so he left it as a footnote. But what a great footnote. Nasali uh, recommends readers to read this uh, exchange between uh, Thomas Schreiner and Brian Abbasiano. Uh, Schreiner wrote a paper titled, Does Romans 9 Teach Individual Election Onto Salvation? Abbasiano writes a paper titled, Corporate Election in Romans 9, a reply to Thomas Schreiner. And soon after, we read Schreiner's uh, paper titled Corporate and Individual Election in Romans 9, a response to Brian Abbasiano. I've read all those three papers, I enjoyed the back and forth, and if anyone wants to do a deep dive into the topic of individual election or corporate election, why is it important, how can we find out from scripture, then these uh, three papers are the gold standard. This is the gold standard for that debate. So I, if you ever want to go in a deep dive, please go into these 
three uh, papers. So this is a reading and reader's review of a commentary on Romans written by Paul J. Actemeyer uh, from the series Interpretation, um, a commentary on for preaching and teaching. It's a 256 pages published by Westminster John Knox Press in 1986. As I explained, I struggled to finish the book, which is why the, this review is not in time for people to grab it as a free book from Logos. It was free in October, now it's November, uh, so if you missed it, uh, just make sure you don't miss the November deal. So thank you for listening, bye-bye. <laughs>